Good morning. Whether you're watching live stream or in person, I'm glad you're here. Would you please check and make sure if you have a cell phone that it is where it won't disturb the people around you? I don't want you to be embarrassed <laughs> during today's class. And uh, those of you who are here in person, you notice that guy and you notice all the people back there at the table. It takes four or five people to make sure that this goes out live stream. They do it every Sunday, so I thank them. And two of them are probably not going to be with us much longer. Olivia, when do you leave? That's the answer. Okay. William, when do you leave? In the summer. So I can harass both of you a little longer. A little longer. That's the answer, too. We're into hand signals. That's it, time. So um, let's begin in silence as we do and just do what is necessary for you to do to be here, okay? So in this time, we honor the trinity of love, truth, and freedom with the belief that what we do here benefits all people everywhere. So no matter who you are and no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. So uh, I want to recognize three people. Dr. Bankston? He's back here. So Dr. Jim Bankston is here. Dr. Jim Bankston is the man who is responsible for me, my being on the staff at St. Paul's and for teaching this class. And I have said over the years that if there is anything that you like about ordinary life, please tell him. <laughs> and if there's anything you don't like about it, please tell my wife. And uh, then she'll tell me, and then that will be a way. Anyway, when... Dr. Bankston uh, arranged for me to make the transition. I had to go through the ordination process. They assigned a mentor to me with the hopes that he would be able to keep me in line. That did not occur. But we became great friends, and that man is Tom Doherty. Tom and Jerry Lynn are sitting here today, and this is their last Sunday to be here physically as they are moving to Fort Worth Tuesday. Is that right? So stand up and let people recognize you and uh, the two of you. We love you and we appreciate you. So Tom and I have met either physically or on Zoom uh, consistently since uh, the ordination process. I love both of you and I'm so grateful for our friendship and we'll Keep it up, just electronically, right? So anyway, I didn't teach here last week, and uh, I'm so grateful for uh, Holly and for Rod, Roddy and for Jet, who is not here, making up that panel that we had last week to talk about human sexuality. But because I didn't teach, I had a fair amount of time to work on what I wanted to do today. Uh, the last time I did teaching here, the, the Buffalo shooting had just occurred a few days before. And we talked about that briefly. And that class, if you remember, was about why bad, so-called bad things happen to good people. And I say so-called because even in the teachings of Jesus, uh, and it's the most radical thing he said, second most radical thing he said, was um, the rain falls on the just and the unjust, which is a very contrary to Jewish thought at, at the time. So the Buffalo shooting was the consequence of a bucket full of human evil and incompetence. And then just over four days ago, we get slammed with yet uh, another mass shooting and this one's so horrific that like the day, and I'm dating myself, 
Like the day when John Kennedy was shot or the Challenger blew up on the launch pad, I will remember this day forever. Remember where I was when it happened, when I got the news. I was driving home from my office here and I had just finished listening to a book on audible.com. I was just about to pull in the driveway and it was not time to start another book. It would be dangerous to do. So I turned on NPR on the radio and they were doing a story about gun shooting. And since I don't put NPR and breaking news together in the same thought, I thought surely this is they're doing a historical documentary about some shooting, maybe kicked off by the Buffalo thing. Well, it wasn't. It was another in a long line of people being massacred. And is this shooting is part of the sacrifice that the gun rights culture is willing to pay to protect what some refer to as their God-given right to bear arms. We are from the country that has God-given right to bear arms. You know, the 19 children who were murdered in Uvalde were, were babies, and none of us can imagine what the parents went through that Tuesday afternoon and night. And um, I've been in the hospital in um, emergency rooms and morgues when people have had to identify next of kin. Usually, uh, next of kin identification is easy because the person died of an illness, not unexpected. Sometimes heart attacks that are not expected, sometimes of accidents and that sort of thing. It's horrific under the best of circumstances. I cannot imagine taking a small body like that and shooting with an AK-47 seven, eight, nine, ten times. There's nothing left to identify. It's horrible. We have a psychosis in this country about guns. And though some of what I will say later in this time today will seem to reference the horror in Uvalde, I wrote it before the event, and I'm really out of stuff to say about it. And I may be laboring under a delusion, but I don't think anybody in this room needs to hear more. You know. I do want to share a few things with you before getting back into the story of blindness being healed in the Gospel of John. And I'm going to deal with it in the context of where we are, you know, Bible in one hand, newspaper in the other kind of thing. Um, this story is from John, and if you check out what was going on at the end of the first century when the Gospel of John was finally assembled, you'll see that was a really rough time too. Uh, when Jesus was a teenager, according to what figures that we have, there was a mass execution in the town of Sephora, Sephoris, which uh, was known according to the historians I've read as a place where a lot of insurrectionists and rebels against the Roman Empire lived. And one day, the Roman Empire executed 2,000 men from Sephoris, 2,000, and they lined the road going into and out of Sephoris with the crosses of those bodies. Jesus would have been aware of that. The people who wrote the Gospel of John were in active persecution by the Roman Empire by the time the Gospel was written. I have a dear friend who lives in California uh, and he, he was the first person I ever knew who was a, really a member of Mensa. You know, the really smart people's group. And um, he told me that he gave up on things about guns changing. He meant about assault weapons changing, being different in this country when there was no change after the massacre at Sandy Hook. 
1996, after a man went on a killing rampage in Australia, they banned semi-automatic and pump-action firearms. The Australian government passed a law banning assault-type weapons. And they said to the people in the country, turn them in and we'll buy them back from you. Don't turn them in and we catch you with one, we're going to put you in jail. This is a picture, one picture. The other, uh, we, I get my news from Stephen Colbert. And so I tape Stephen Colbert and watch it the next night. And I've had people in this class who have been taunting me with doing, uh, at the beginning of a class every Sunday, a meanwhile sec segment. I don't, I can't write that cleverly. I just, the people who write that are just, just amazing. Anyway, the night, the program that we watched last night was from a few days ago. And Stephen Colbert had the Prime Minister of New Zealand on. They had a mass shooting in New Zealand, and he asked her, what did you do? He knew what they had done, and she just said, Parliament passed a law, no more assault weapons. It was the thing to do. So, our country does not have that will. And since this happened in Australia, since what I just described happened in New Zealand, their gun deaths have dramatically and and this those two stories remind us what a dismal outlier the United States remains in terms of gun violence Let's see that uh, even in the face of the most gruesome and abhorrent of mass shootings the killings of school children um, we met through the choir's involvement with uh, the cathedral in Ely, Peter and Helen Sills, who, when he was in the ministry, he was active as the canon of the church, uh, the cathedral in Ely, beautiful church. And so um, when the choir went to Scotland a few years ago, um, after the residency in Scotland, Peter and Helen and Sherry and I took a tour of Scotland with Peter doing the guiding and we spent every day with them and had meals and so forth. And one night at dinner, uh, Helen asked us, is it true that you have active shooter trainings in your public schools in the United States? And I said, yes, in some, in some cases they are mandated. So um, my friend, if I can get this thing to work consistently, sent me some, um, cartoons in case you can't read they keep sending their thoughts and prayers and their children a well-regulated militia doesn't kill children there's something deeply hypocritical about people praying for a problem you're unwilling to resolve. The most recent thing is, in addition to having just one door people can use to get in and out of schools. Um, by the way, the NRA convention met here this week. <laughs> they banned guns. I'm all for that. I think it's a good thing to do. But you know, the NRA says it's not guns that kill people, it's people that kill people. Why didn't they ban people? Don't even suggest arming teachers. Some of y'all don't even trust us to select library books. <laughs> you wonder why we have a culture like this. These are Christmas cards sent out by elected representatives last year. This system desperately needs an update. Do you want to install now or wait till the next tragedy? Um, ever since Diana Butler Bass was here last year, I subscribed to her paid newsletter called The Cottage. 
I think there's a free version of it that you can get. You can Google Diana Butler Bass. It comes out every Sunday, and then there's something in midweek. It's not that expensive, and I recommend it. Um, so after the Uvalde shooting, she sent out a piece titled The Risk of Prayer. And I want to read to you a portion of it, and, and there will be a link in the summary of this time. If you don't know, you can sign up for the emails that go out on Tuesday um, mornings and Friday mornings when there will be the text of this talk, all the slides that you see if you want to access them. And then on Friday, there's a preview of what will be done the next week. I'm quoting now Diana Butler Bass. In November 2018, following a massacre in Thousand Oaks, California, Bishops United Against Gun Violence, an activist group of bishops in the Episcopal Church, offered a litany in the wake of mass shootings to commemorate the dead, to comfort their loved ones, and to honor survivors and first responders. Since then, they've regularly and sadly updated the lit litany. I tweeted it tonight in rage and sadness listening to the news about the massacre of little children in Uvalde, Texas. Merely tweeting it was an act of defiance, prayer, lament, and empowerment. I strongly encourage you to pray the entire thing. Thoughts and prayers can really mean something if those thoughts and prayers reveal the extent of evil and break our hearts with the love and sorrow of God. In lament and litany, we can discover we have the power to act. And she goes on and quotes Nelson Mandela as saying, it always seems impossible until it's done. And then the litany begins with the shooting at the Sikh temple in Wisconsin and names them all, Aurora, Colorado, Sandy Hook Elementary, Santa Monica College, Hialeah, Florida Apartment Complex, Washington Navy Yard, Fort Hood, Texas, and on and on, naming 56 shootings until just this past week. And these are just the notable ones. These are just the ones that really make the big news. There is a mass shooting every day in this country, every day. And sometimes, since words can't convey the nature of our difficulty, I think it helps to see the picture of things. So here is a chart uh, of the number of mass shootings in developed countries around the world. All of these countries have racial conflicts. All of these countries have mental health problems. What they don't have is mass shootings. I wonder why. Hmm. And then this is a chart of the relationship of gun ownership of the homicides in developed countries. Now maybe what these charts are revealing is that we're not a developed country. So my friend in California um, had a suggestion. He said, make it as difficult for a man to buy a gun as we make it for a woman to get an abortion. Now, I do not for a second downplay or ignore the role that corrupt understanding of Christianity has been empowered to flourish under fundamentalism in this country, has played in this. Um, you remember a couple of weeks ago, we started looking at Harry Emerson's Fosdick sermon preached 100 years ago, shall the fundamentalist win? They have. They have. Not that they might. They have. Um... So someone in Houston sent me this image, and when I got it, I said, surely this must be a joke. It isn't. In case you can't read the ad copy, it says, The Enduring Freedom Jesus Christ Doll with Rocket Launcher, ages four and up. Lord and Savior action figure with desert camp canteen, belt, knife, light mortar, rocket launcher, includes projectile bombs with deleted uranium tips. Let's roll. Jesus Christ will bring peace in the world himself. 
$24.99. This is our culture. Not yours. I mean, I know you don't get exposed to this sort of stuff often. I have to come here to get corrupted. So this uh, talk today I titled, I See. I see. Do we? Now, I have no way of proving what I am about to say, but um, I think we're still doing the man born blind story in John for guidance here. And, and I have no way of proving what I'm about to see, but I think one of the most frequently used phrases in the English language is, I see. I've had poor vision all of my life. It went undetected until I was in junior high school. I thought it was normal not to be able to make some, out somebody's facial figures, features if I was this close to you. I thought that was normal. I thought it was normal when I saw a tree just to see a big blur of green or yellow in, in the fall until I got corrective lenses and wow. Until I got them and I saw my first marching band, I thought the guys who were playing trombone were swallowing that slide that went up and down like the sword swallow in the circus because I couldn't see. You know, my avocation is magic. And uh, the tagline in magic is now you see it, now you don't. So I'm going to show you a magic trick. I'm going to show you six cards. I want you to pick one in your mind. Just focus on one of them. Maybe say it to yourself. Just silently say it. Say it. Say it. Get one card fixed in your mind. I'm going to make those cards disappear. You got your card? I'm going to remove it. <clears throat> Now, after class, I will tell you how that's done. <laughs> and then I will have to kill you. <laughs> I can't reveal secrets. I, um, I collect things. I collect kaleidoscopes. And I love kaleidoscopes. I have a camera that will take a kaleidoscopic filter on the front of it and allow me to take pictures of some of the images that I see in kaleidoscopes. These are not dime store kaleidoscopes. They are signed, numbered pieces of art. And I have loved these things since I was a child. There is a convention of kaleidoscope collectors that used to meet annually called the Brewster Society. And you can go to their website, which again, I will put in the summary that goes out, and you can find kaleidoscopes that various artists have for sale. And knowing, I do not get a cut of this, that you probably would like to own your own kaleidoscope. This one is called the SK9, and it can be yours for a mere $6,500. As again, numbered, signed, copyrighted piece. Okay, that's too expensive for you. So here is another one called the lionfish, it's more reasonably priced at $650. I'm putting a, a link, as I said, to the Brewster Society in case you're interested in these. They have a lot of kaleidoscopes there. And it's called the Brewster Society because Sir David Brewster is considered the inventor of the kaleidoscope and was issued a patent for the first kaleidoscope in 1817. So I'm fascinated by these things. One of the reasons is that they're a metaphor, I think, for ongoing spiritual work. Because if you take a kaleidoscope apart, what you see are broken pieces of glass, which viewed a certain way form beautiful patterns. I love optical illusions. Here is one. This one is a EC Escher, Escher thing. Now, I'm going to turn it on. It's, a, it's electronic. And I want you to focus first on the top of it and see which way it moves and then look at the bottom of it. 
Is that not amazing? Well, I could sit here and watch this sort of thing all day. It's a great cartoon here. <clears throat> Escher, get your ass up here. Okay, uh, I have a handout for you. And the people in the back of the room are going to hand these out. They're going to start at the four corners of the room. And the handout that you're going to get, you can't, you can't do what I'm going to suggest you do. This is what you're going to get. But you can't do it just by watching what's on the screen. You have to have a handout. So when everybody's got one. I'll give you the destructions. I do not know who came up with this. There are instructions at the bottom of it if you want to go ahead and do it. What the instructions say are to stare intently at the four dots that are right, four black dots that are right in the middle of the picture. Just stare intently. Now, you, as I say, I don't think this will work on the monitor. You have to do it on paper. Stare intently for 30 seconds. Don't, don't take your eye off of it for 30 seconds, starting now. And those of you at home, this will be in the slides that go out on Tuesday morning if you would like to print this out and do it yourself and amaze your friends and neighbors. Thirty seconds. Some of you have not had thirty seconds, so let's do a few more. Just stare, stare, stare. Now close your eyes and wait for an after image. Close your eyes and wait for an after image. You get it? Get it? You what? Uh, I'll see you after class. You can take it home and try again. I see. Do we? Now, if you were fortunate enough in the parenting you received, you were seen as a child rather than evaluated. It was later than I wish I had learned in this, this in my own parenting. When my children were young and they would try some new physical skill like being able to turn a somersault on the carpet and they would say, Dad, Dad, look at me, look at me. I would say, that's good, honey. Instead of, I see you. Such a difference. Because we live in a culture that's so used to evaluating good, bad, up, right, down, in, out, all that, instead of, I see you, that's good. Or don't do that in the house. Now, all of these things that I've talked to you about, good eyesight, magic, kaleidoscopes, optical illusions, art, the way we interact with each other, are about seeing. And more often than not, they show us that though we thought we, thought we saw, we don't. Or we learn that what we thought we saw has dramatically shifted. Does anyone really think that Second Amendment rights people see these graphs? Or if they see them, they have all of those bias filters that we talked about a few weeks ago that cause them to say, yeah, but, yeah, but. So, so much wise and useful spiritual teachings are around seeing, enlightenment, light, and the requirement of being present in order to see. We say when somebody presents us with something new, information or something, I see. Oh, I see. But often we don't. We just say that we see when we don't see. 
of all the huge issues facing our country at the moment, those on either side of the great divide that has become our country seem not to be able to see each other. Now, I, I um, have come to the conclusion at the moment that it's useless to talk about doing something about guns. After the Supreme Court's leak of the ruling that will overturn Roe versus Wade and the shooting in Buffalo, I have come to the conclusion, and I, I feel like it's just a mature, honest thing. You know, the Trinity is love, honesty, and freedom, honest thing. Uh, I've lived with a myth about this country all my adult life. And the myth after, it came up for me after the George Floyd thing, and people were saying, we're better than this. And I started thinking, no, we're not. I didn't say, you're not better than this. Please get me clear about that. You're not in that demographic. People who would attend this class are not in that demographic. I'm talking about we as a country. I'll go back to what I said earlier. If we as a country submitted to a psychiatric evaluation, the diagnosis would be psychotic. And it's denial to admit otherwise. You, both individually and collective, are part of a cognitive minority. We are not the people in power. And the most that people in power can do is say thoughts and prayers, or come up with a suggestion that's idiocy, pardon me. And we don't have, we collectively in this small group here um, don't have much power to make a difference. Now the group in power is not saying this explicitly, but they are saying it by their denial and insane solutions to solve our mass shooting problem. What they're saying they're not saying it literally, but what they're saying is get used to it. Learn to adapt because they're coming. There will be, if we don't change something, there will be more mass shootings. I also want to, and I'm speaking from a psychological perspective here, I hear often somebody will say, well, our system is broken. No, it isn't. Our system is working just fine. It's delivering what it is designed to deliver. The, the system we have in place is designed to deliver us more mass shootings. That's the system. When Paul, in the Christian scriptures, writes about the principalities and the powers in dark places, this is what he's talking about, the system. He was talking about the Roman system that executed people for unfair, unjust reasons and excluded people. Jesus talked about the rabbinic system that excluded people for all sorts of reasons. It was the system. It's just as powerful in our time. That 18-year-old child who committed the Buffalo atrocity spent months plotting and sharing his plan. Nobody, nobody said, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa to stop it. I read an in-depth article in the New Yorker magazine that was simply chilling about the, and this is the title of the article, Online Spaces That Enable Mass Shooters. And when somebody says to me, well, it's always been this way, no, it hasn't. And some say, well, we had guns when we were 17 and 18. I did, at a 22 a 410 shotgun, I did not have an AK-47. This is a reality. And now, like the Dalai Lama who has learned to live in exile in India, we're gonna have to learn to live with this reality. And don't let that get you down. Well, no, it does, but look at the Dalai Lama. He laughs all the time. We have to find a way to do that, to live in this context with people who have been touched by the values and teachings of Jesus in a way that allows us to contribute to transformation, not to doom and gloom. Okay. 
Now, I could say number thing, the same thing about a number of issues facing us, climate change, authoritarianism, the collapse of liberal democracy, regression, repression of women's rights, those who are othered because of their sexuality. The people who produced the Gospel of John, you knew I was going to get into this, didn't you? They were a def definite minority in the culture where they lived. They were not the majority. They also took hits for what they embraced. So again, I want to read to you the section in John you're de we're dealing with. And as you listen to it, I want you to listen to it as if you were listening to Jesus tell a parable. Because this is what this is. It is a parable. It is not a report on the 10 o'clock news. It is a parable. Oh, took that out. Walking down the street, Jesus saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, causing him to be born blind? And Jesus said, you're asking the wrong question. You're looking for someone to blame. There's no such cause here. Look instead for what God can do. We need to be energetically at work for the one who sent me here, working while the sun shines. When night falls, the workday is over. For as long as I'm in the world, there's plenty of life. I am the world's light. He said this and spit in the dust, made a clay paste with the saliva, rubbed the paste on the blind man's eyes and said, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means sent. The man went and washed and saw. There's more to the story. We'll get to it. One of the commentaries I'm consulting while studying John says that this story is the focal point of the Gospel of John. Wow. Now that's quite a statement. And one of the reasons any of the gospel narratives were written was to instruct those who had not heard of Jesus but who were attracted to the community that gathered around his ideas and how they were being transformed by his spirit and teaching. They wanted to know what the story was about. Especially, they wanted to know, why did he get crucified? And, and, and why didn't that stop you? And there's so talk about resurrection here. And what do you mean you experience him alive? And more, how can we have this experience? That's why the Gospel of John was written. All right. So in this story, you have Jesus. Uh, it's an opportunity for Jesus to teach, teach about justice. It's the opportunity to deal with the matter of sin, which is great in, the, in Jewish theology. And it was a matter of taking healing and wholeness out of the hands of the establishment, something Jesus was constantly doing. He healed on the Sabbath, another law-breaking thing here. And he healed this person. And all these powerful elements in this story. So this blind person, no matter how much he seemed to belong to the dark, our time, does not refuse to see in Jesus the light of the world. So for this community, now keep in mind, this story is a metaphor, all right? It's, it's a metaphor, which carries much more of a wallop than if it were, let me tell you what happened yesterday downtown. So for this Johannine community, Jesus becomes the standard for doing the will of God. Let me say that in a clearer way. Jesus becomes the standard for doing the will of God, not the community, not the Jewish religion. The Torah's got to get out of the way, Jesus said. I didn't come to dismiss it, I came to make it full. So the man, the blind man healed, becomes a metaphor for enlightenment. And later, when he is grilled by the officials, he says, one thing I know. Once I was blind, but now I see. So the point of enlightenment is the point in John. And it's the, point, the turning point in, in this gospel. This story, enlightenment means to see things as they are, really are. And this is not easy. 
Because as the prologue of the Gospel of John says, we are caught, just like they were caught, in a world that prefers the dark to the light. And further, we can't see what our culture says don't see. I want to read to you something that's in this commentary that I just referred to. And I want to give you a heads up, I'm going to read it twice, because it's one of the most powerful paragraphs about this story. Here's what the commentator says. The physical restoration of sight to the blind man is a metaphor for our more significant interior discovery of sight. From knowing one thing with certainty, the fact of his healing, the man born blind moves outward to rebuild his whole understanding of the world. The experience of mystical enlightenment is precisely this kind of world-shattering, world-rebuilding event, which grounds our view of the world no longer in tradition or in intellectual or religious systems, but in the unshakable recollection of an immediate personal encounter with ultimate reality. This is so important, I want to read it again. The physical restoration of sight to the blind man is a metaphor for our more significant interior discovery of sight. For knowing one thing with certainty, the fact of healing, the man born blind moves outward to rebuild his whole understanding of the world. The experience of mystical enlightenment is precisely this kind of world-shattering, world-rebuilding event which grounds our view of the world no longer in tradition or in intellectual religious systems, but in the unshakable recollection of an immediate personal encounter with ultimate reality. <clears throat> So, given what is, what are we going to do? Now, you know my answer to that. We have to have a daily spiritual practice. Not talk about it, but have it. One of my favorite exchanges from the work of Carl Jung is, he was asked, will we make it? And his response was, if enough of us do our own work. Have a daily spiritual practice. And let that spiritual practice be about seeing what is either difficult to see or what we're unwilling to see. Now, our culture, the culture that you and I live in right at this moment, is both run and ruined by four powerful archetypes. I'm not going to go into these today, uh, but I do want to lift them up. One is the archetype of patriarchy. White men, old white men, run the show. Whether they're in politics or in uh, large corporations, uh, they run the show. And uh, the, the movement that you have that is going against the anxiety about what wants to happen in the culture is the rise of white supremacy. This is part of that patriarchy that has a cynic group. And this shadow archetype affects our understanding of God. God's a male. God's authoritarian. God's out there. This is a reflexive thing that most, of, most people think of when they think of God. They don't think of God as being female, of color. We just don't. Powerful archetype. The, the guy who sent me this, uh, this fig action figure of Jesus in the gun outfit, I sent him back one. I said, uh, this has got to be a joke. And he said, no, it's not a joke. It doesn't represent my Jesus because my Jesus is black. Okay? 
If you have not seen it, go on this afternoon, go on, enter your search engine, White Jesus video. I've shown it in here before about the guys in prayer asking for Jesus to come, and Jesus shows up. Watch it. Another thing that we have is a flawed notion of creation. We used to live in the Garden of Eden. Everything was fine, and if we could just go back there, it was never that way. But it's the archetype that grips us. Oh, can't we go back to a former time? It's a great political slogan. The other is the need to be dependent. You are a child of God, not an adult God of God, not a partner with God, not a co-creator with God, but a child. You're dependent. I can tell you what to do. You need to do this. One of the things you need to do is to be born again, make you an infant. You've got to play better rules. And wrapped up in this notion of this archetype uh, about the need to be dependent is that somehow God has got to be compensated if we're going to make it, right? And the big compensation is Jesus died for your sins and that make you feel bad? If you just do something about it, then everything will be all right and you'll be safe. And then the worst of our collective set of archetypes is the belief in redemptive violence. You know, I knew when I was in seminary that the movement that Jesus founded was a nonviolent one. I was, it was decades before that knowledge made the long 18-inch journey from my head to my heart. That's a long trip to make. It's a hard one. The movement Jesus founded promoted love, not war. He elevated solidarity, not oppression and exclusion. The early movement, the one that produced the Gospel of John, was known for its friendship among those who were part of the movement, not hierarchy. And this commitment to nonviolence eroded rapidly in the 4th century when the Emperor Constantine declared Christianity to be the religion of the empire. And this led to an acceptance of violence and domination against the empire's enemies. And also, sadly, it led to violence against those who were perceived as enemies within the group. It evolved to the point that the church, which boasts that it follows Jesus, is in most places not a safe place for people to be who choose to be different. By the way, choosing to be different is the root meaning of the word heresy. Yep. Would I kid you? I would, I would, I would. It's exactly what's being played out in the Methodist Church at this moment. But just to be clear, Jesus never tortured, killed, ruined the life of anyone. But it cannot be said for the religion that bears his name. I think it's not only useless, it's non-productive for me or any of us simply to be critical of our country or of organized religion. It's a given that neither is working well at the moment. And though it's true that many who call themselves Christians are not only not transformed people, they're part of the problem, but just pointing it out is not doing anyone any good. Um, one of the illusions most of us live with is the illusion of control. We want to be in control. And we aren't. Now, Hang on. We're going to get deep now. One of the hopeful things about right here, right now, where we are as a culture is that we are in a dark place. We don't need to deny that, repress it, or resist it. In all valid spiritual traditions I know anything about. Now, I'm using the Jesus tradition and Jesus language because it's mine. But a spiritual reality in our tradition is called the dark night of the soul. And we're there. We are in the dark night. 
And in the dark night of the soul, we don't grasp if we do our work, we are encountered. Now, years ago, when I began to teach in there, and I take full responsibility of this, so don't complain to Dr. Bankston about this, to me. Um, I had such reliable ideas about God, about what it meant to be a believer. Those things now will fit in a shoebox. I've not lost my faith in the mystery. I have lost faith in the system that promised me something that it cannot deliver. And that is safety in all ways, always. Being at sea and steering by the stars may be scary, but it's truer than anything I know, and I have a commitment to speak the truth. The stars are those I've called the new trinity, love, honesty, and freedom. You know, there are not a lot of people lined up to learn what is not. Aren't you lucky to be among them? So historically, the dark night of the soul has been mystery's great gift of liberation. It's about freeing us from ideas about God, fears about God, attachments to all that we've been promised, like going to heaven when you die and having your prayers answered like God's a divine bellhop, so that we can have an encounter with the mystery, so that we can be known, so that we can experience that we don't hold we're held. We're never more in danger of stumbling than when we are certain we know where we're going. All that's required of us is to stay conscious, to love, to tell the truth, and to be committed to freedom for ourselves and for everybody else. So go from here and live the life you live knowing what, doing what you love to do. Just do it in ways that honor the trinity of love, honesty, and freedom. I'll see you here next Sunday. Thank you.